message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are glad that you're here. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to open it to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, the passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, for our young followers of Jesus this morning, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon. First, listen for what the word federal means. What does the word federal mean? Second, listen for who is described as the last Adam. Who's the last Adam? And third, listen for a story about a late library book. A story about a late library book. Well, this morning we're wrapping up our four-week Advent sermon series. Over the past few weeks, we've taken time to reflect on what Jesus came to do in our lives and in this world as he executed the offices of prophet, priest, and king. We talked about how in Jesus we have the perfect prophet who came to speak truth into our lives. We have the perfect priest who came to offer himself up once and for all as a sacrifice for our sin. We have the perfect king who came to establish peace and justice and righteousness in this world. And this morning as we wrap up this series, we're going to turn our attention to another crucial role that Jesus plays in our lives. And that's the role of the perfect man. The perfect man. Not only is Jesus the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, he's also the perfect person. Michael Williams, who authored the book entitled, Far As the Curse is Found, says, Jesus is man as man was meant to be, obeying God perfectly in all things. Jesus is man as man was meant to be. And to see this, we're going to be looking at a passage from the letter Paul wrote to the Romans. And like most of Romans, this passage is theologically dense, to say the least. There's a lot of theology packed into the 10 verses that we're about to read. And we're going to have to distill some concepts to stay focused this morning. And before we jump in, I just want to highlight the fact that I am well aware of the fact that we won't be able to explore every theological nook and cranny from Romans chapter 5 this morning. We won't dumb it down, but we will try to boil it down. And to see that Jesus is man as man was meant to be, let's turn our attention now to Romans chapter 5. You follow along as I begin reading in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, as you know, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. One of the things I really enjoy is studying politics. I find it fascinating to consider the different ways that human societies have ordered and structured themselves so that people might be able to coexist with one another and even flourish. In fact, I took enough political science classes during my college years to tack on a minor in that discipline, although I've forgotten a lot of what I've learned. But as you survey the world, there are various political systems that different countries live under. Some countries maintain a monarchy. Some countries live under communism. Some countries have authoritarian regimes. Some countries enjoy democracy. In our country, we talk about democracy a lot. But we're not really a pure democracy. You know that, right? If we were, everything we had to decide on would have, been, uh, have to be voted on every time by everyone. And that's not really feasible, is it? So what we have in our country is known as a federal republic that is democratic in nature. Now, the word federal comes from the Latin word fotus, which means contract or covenant. Federal means covenant. And this is significant because some of you will know that in a covenant, someone can represent you. In a federal relationship, someone represents you. In a covenant, if your representative does well, you get credit for that action, even if you are the one who did it. And on the flip side, if your representative fails, then you're given that negative credit too. You see how this works in our government. I mean, we can't vote on everything every time, so we elect specific people in hopes that they'll go to Washington to represent us in our interests. And when that person acts, they act for a larger group. For instance, if our government declares war, Americans are at war. Now, you might say, well, I'm not at war. I didn't vote to go to war. But in a very real sense, as an American, you're at war. You also see this idea of representation uh, in sports. We hitch our bandwagon to certain teams. We revel in their victories and we're dejected in their defeats. Maybe even saying we won or we lost based on the outcome of the game. Now, if you step back and think about it, that's peculiar language because it's likely that you never played a minute of the game. But our team represents us. We're tied to them. They play the role of our federal representative. Now, we try hard not to get overly technical with theological concepts on Sunday morning here at Trinity Grace. Maybe we already have. But we want to make the message as comprehensible as possible, even to those who have no theological vocabulary. But we've got to understand some theological concepts if we're going to fully appreciate the passage that we just read. 
The Bible is very familiar with this concept where one person can represent many. The theological term for it is federal headship or covenantal headship. And by it, we mean that we see certain figures in Scripture act for or represent other people. And there are two federal figures in the passage that we just read, and you could say that they are the biggest federal figures, the biggest representatives that we find in all the Scriptures. In our passage, Paul is making the case that all people are either in Adam or they're in Christ. People can be represented by Adam or they can be represented by Christ. You can have one of two of those federal representatives. Paul's really getting at the fact that who you have representing you is vitally important. In fact, Paul is implicitly answering the question, can one man actually change my life? Does one man actually have that much power over me? And the answer to that question, according to Paul, is yes. And it's really the foundation of the good news that Paul was sent to proclaim. Just stop and think about it for a minute. What is the good news? What's the good news? If someone asked you, what is the good news that is offered on the pages of the New Testament, how would you answer that question? It's an important question to get settled. Is the good news just information? Is it a system that you believe in? Is it a list of moral requirements? Is that the good news? Is it belief in a certain set of propositions? Well, the answer is no. Through the New Testament and in our passage this morning, we see that the good news is a person. A person who has the power to change your life. Everything that is good about the good news directs you to one man, and that man is Jesus Christ. Paul wants to direct us to that man in this passage this morning, and he does it by comparing two different representatives, two different men, two different federal heads, you might say. And as we consider this passage this morning, we're going to look at it under two broad headings. First, considering how Paul talks about the first Adam, and then turning to reflect on how Paul talks about the last Adam. First, let's take a look at what Paul has to say about the first Adam and It would be good to start our conversation about the first Adam asking, what did the first Adam do? The Adam in the garden. Adam of Adam and Eve fame. You read about him in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Well, obviously he sinned. Paul goes out of his way to highlight the fact that Adam made a cosmic mistake. Look at verse 16. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Now look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Paul is talking about this first Adam and he's highlighting one particular trespass that has ramifications for everyone else that would walk on this earth. Many of you know the story. Back in Genesis, Adam was created. He was made in the image of God. He was placed in the garden where he lived in what, what, what we might think of as paradise. And Adam had freedom that we can't even imagine. He was given authority. He had creative license. He was invited to enjoy the goodness of God in ways that we can't even fathom. But there was a boundary line that was given back in Genesis. And that boundary was set by God 
and it involved the fruit of one specific tree. Now, we don't know what kind of fruit it was. The scriptures doesn't say, but Adam eats the fruit of that tree and he crosses over a boundary line. He crosses over the boundary line, you might say. And if you step back and consider the action, it really seems so benign. He just ate a piece of fruit. I mean, he doesn't murder Eve. He doesn't burn the garden down. He trespasses, though, through a boundary that was given by God. And trespass is a word that Paul uses multiple times to describe Adam's sin in our passage. Trespass oftentimes is a synonym for sin. And think about what trespassing is. It's when you're on someone else's land. It's when you've crossed a clearly marked boundary. And even if you're not disturbing anything after you've crossed that boundary, you are trespassing. And that's what Adam did according to Paul. He crossed a boundary. He willfully trespassed against God. And what does this trespass unleash according to Paul in Romans chapter 5? Well, you don't have to look at Romans 5 to see it. You see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam's trespass, God's blessings turn to curses. Instead of benediction from God, blessing, now God gives his people malediction, curses. And Paul picks up on that idea in Romans 5. Look at verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And look at verse 21. Sin reigned in death. What's Paul saying here? Well, it's not just a sad story after a failure. Adam's sin wasn't just an isolated incident. Paul is talking about floodgates being unleashed after Adam stepped across the boundary that was given by God. After he trespassed, there was darkness and evil unleashed in this world that up until that point was not experienced. When Adam trespassed, when sin entered the world, relationships changed. People became bent against God, against one another. They became bent in on themselves. When sin entered, death is experienced, both physical and spiritual. Adam was immediately separated from God, experiencing spiritual death in an instance. And after his trespass, Adam's days on earth would be numbered. He would have to stare down physical death as the consequence for what he had done. And the way Paul frames it is that sin came into the world to sit on a throne. He says, to reign. Because of what Adam did, because of his trespass, sin is in charge now, and sin comes and it ruins lives. Now, we should turn and ask the question, who does this affect? We might ask, who does Adam represent? Well, the answer is all of his posterity, every human being in the world. Look at verse 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. The scriptures talk about Adam as our first father. He was our representative. And we're all infected with sin because of the choice he made. He passed it down from generation to generation, this disease known as sin. Now, you might want to object, and rightfully so. You might want to say something like, wait a second, we weren't alive then. I didn't sin in the garden. I didn't eat the fruit. But remember the federal nature of Adam's existence. He acted for us. 
He rebelled and we get the credit for his disobedience. And you might imagine that this does not sit well with people like you and me, Westerners in general and Americans in particular. The fact that someone else acted for us without our choice or permission can drive us nuts. That's not fair. That's our initial response. Now, if it's unfair for one federal head to represent you, then it's unfair for another federal head to represent you as well, which is about to become very important as we continue along in our passage in Romans chapter 5. But in this passage, Paul is indicating that you and I sinned in Adam. And while we object oftentimes by saying, I would have done it differently if given the chance. If I'd been placed in the garden and had the company of Eve, and could experience all of this freedom, I never would have gone near the fruit, the boundary marker that God had placed. We would have made a different choice, wouldn't we have? Well, our lives testify that that is not true on a daily basis. And what's more, God chose the most qualified person to represent humanity at the time, right? And it was God who chose, and so who are we to say that he didn't make the best choice? Through our representative, the first Adam, we were given the status of sinners, according to verse 19. In other words, we're not basically good people who sometimes do bad things. No, rather, we're basically flawed people whose flaws reveal themselves repeatedly in specific acts of sin. Another way you can think about this is to ask yourself the question, don't answer it out loud, but ask yourself the question, Are you a sinner because you sin, or do you sin because you're a sinner? Answer that question in your mind. Are you a sinner because you sin, or do you sin because you're a sinner? Well, Romans 5 is telling us it's the latter. Because of Adam, none of us show up neutral. The biblical picture is that we show up with malformed hearts. We all arrive into this world with a spiritual disease. And because of that, we sin. And this means that in our own power, we can't turn over a new leaf. We can't get our act together. We can't promise that from now on, we'll refrain from certain activities. We won't do those things again. If you are in Adam, sin is sitting on the throne of your life. It's reigning. Now, doesn't that help us make sense of this world in our own lives in so many ways? That's the legacy of Adam. Now, let's turn and give our attention to the last Adam. It's not found in our passage this morning, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to Jesus as the last Adam, the second Adam. And the last Adam comes to reverse the consequences of the first Adam's trespass. Paul puts it this way in verse 18. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And if you flip to the front of your bulletin, you'll see the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in his paraphrased version of the scriptures known as the message. He says this, here it is in a nutshell, Just as one person did it wrong and got us all in this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many people in the right. 
Similar to Adam, Paul says that Jesus did one thing. But that's a bit peculiar because you know that he did many things. In fact, you might say that Jesus did all the things right, didn't he? But if you keep the context in mind, the context of Romans, that is, the thing that Paul has been fixated on as he's making his case through the letter to the Romans is the cross where Jesus comes and takes the condemnation that people like you and me deserve, and the punishment for Adam's sin actually falls on him. He gets what we deserve, not what he deserved. And what do we get because of his obedience, this last Adam's obedience? Well, look at verse 21. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that's an interesting word picture. What does it mean for grace to reign? Well, just like we talked about sin sitting on the throne, if you were in Christ this morning, if you're hidden in the last Adam, then grace is now on the throne of your life. If grace were alive, if grace were a person, he would be inclined to treat you in a way that you don't deserve. He would be inclined not to punish you, but to do you good to go to bat for you and to bring you mercy over and over and over again, even when you don't deserve it and even when you know you don't deserve it. For the people represented by the last Adam, grace is on the throne. Grace, it's not a frightening voice. It's a comforting and encouraging voice. But it's even better according to Paul because in verse 17, we see that there are others who reign too. Look at it. Paul says, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Paul says the people who get the grace are also seated on the throne. It's not just freedom from sin and death, although that would be enough, but God also comes and he puts on the throne those who were once serving sin and death, who were once slaves to it. And he makes them kings and queens. He adopts them into his family as sons and daughters. From the scriptures, we come to understand that the way Adam represents us is that we're born. Everyone is born in Adam. In the way that Christ represents us is that we believe in him. We are united to him through faith. Look, if you're in Jesus, if you are in the last Adam this morning, then God has declared you righteous. Even though you might not feel it all the time, God has declared you righteous, not because of any inherent righteousness that you bring to the table, but because of another person's righteousness altogether. When God looks at you, he sees the work of Jesus and he's able to smile. It's like Paul says in verse 18 when he says, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And again in verse 19, By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This truth should make a difference in how we live in this world. In how we think about our sin and how we engage God's forgiveness. When the moment of Satan's accusations come into your life, when you're down on yourself, when you failed once again, when you've let yourself down, what do you say? What kind of voices do you hear after you've blown it again? So often we say and think things like, I mean, who am I to go to church when I scream at my family the way that I do? 
Who am I to read the Bible after I've looked at what I looked at on the computer? Who am I to act spiritual when I treat other people the way that I treat them? And this kind of self-talk and accusation, it reminds me of a quote from Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he said, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on, on, on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. How do you think God sees you when you sin? Want to hear something so good that it sounds almost too good to be true? Want to hear something so radical that people might object that if you proclaim it too much, it might make people think that they're free to sin? Which is actually the argument that Paul has to encounter at the beginning of chapter 6 in Romans. This good news was so good that people started to believe, wow, this is such good news that maybe I can do whatever I want. How does God see you after you sin? If you're in Christ, He sees you as righteous, perfect, flawless, without blemish, perfectly loved. Paul says in Romans 5 that where sin increased, grace also superabounded. And that's an interesting phrase. It's a word that's only used by Paul twice. And it's not found anywhere else in the ancient Greek language. This, this idea of grace superabounding. It's almost as though Paul had to coin a term himself. Grace is so good that Paul had to make up words to describe it. Paul desperately wants us to know that grace is greater than sin. He says that the gift, which is the Greek word charis, which literally means gift, grace, it's greater than the trespass. In other words, grace always wins. It always outruns sin. That's the point of the passage. That's the big idea. Grace wins. Grace wins in your life on a macro or micro level. And it also wins in larger macro ways in this world. Grace is on the throne because of the last Adam. Grace is winning. Grace will outlast sin. The gift is greater than the trespass, as Paul says. My friend tells a story about his childhood. When he was 11 years old, he had checked out a book from the public library, which he had kept, he says, for more than two years. And now if you use your public library, I've been in this boat before. Sometimes I wondered if we had a wanted sign at the local library growing up because we had so many books out for uh, um, too long. But if you use your public library, you know that fines are imposed for late books. And you can imagine what kind of fine might have accumulated after two whole years. Well, my friend tells the story that his mom finally said, we are going to be taking that book back to the library today. But she knew something that my friend didn't know at the time as she dropped him off at the front door to walk inside all by himself to return the book. And he says, it just stands out in his mind that he was all by himself walking into the library. He walks in, he hands the book to the librarian. She says, thank you. And my friend said, it's really overdue. (laughs) And she says, it's fine free week. It's fine free week. The stodgy lady, he says, with a chain around her glasses says, it's fine free week. And my friend said that he had never heard of that, but he loved it immediately. Fine free week. He said that he could have checked that book out in the 1520s and during fine free week, he paid no penalty. It was an amazing surprise. 
It was free. It was a gift. Now, did you catch how many times Paul uses the phrase free gift in our passage? Five times after verse 15, Paul says the free gift, the free gift, the free gift. Now, do you get the sense that he wants you to know that it's free? That it's a free gift? Jesus Christ, justification is free, at least to us. It cost him a whole lot. It's free for you and me to receive it. And we need the last Adam. Because you and I, we all come from the first. And the last Adam comes to rescue you and me from what we deserve and to bring us joy and life, to bring us the Father's smile, not because of what we've done, but because of what He's done. And that is good news that you and I will never outgrow. It's news that will compel us to walk in faithfulness. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We thank you that the good news is not a set of propositions to believe. It's not a way of life. It's belief in a person, the one who represents us, the one who gives us his righteousness because he takes upon himself our sin. We pray this morning that you would apply that good news deeply to our hearts and that that good news would compel us to move out so that we might love you and love our friends and neighbors as we've been loved by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.